Drew Kayser punting. The dangerous Tyree Kill backpedaling. Handles the sun. Hill finds an opening. Tyree Kill to the outside. Hill blazing speed. Tyree Kill electrifying. 91 yards for the touchdown. I am live from the Sportscasters studio just north of Buffalo, New York. It is in between week one and week two of the NFL season, and my girl Paula is here with me helping out. Paula, can you say hiya? Paula is shy right now, and Paula is honestly upset about the way the Saints played on Sunday. It was a trash game by the Saints defense. I have seen some awful... Uh, performances by the Saints defense, especially on opening day. And uh, that was uh, right up there, just getting absolutely shredded uh, by future Hall of Famer Ryan Fitzpatrick. Uh, It was not the best way to start the season. And I have to admit that I do get nervous when the Saints are frontrunners. The Saints are much better in a spot where they were last year when, honestly, nobody thinks much of them. That's when they generally excel. And when they have expectations, when they're loaded with talent, it just doesn't go well. I mean, if you look back at 2014, which is the last time the hype was even close to where it was in this offseason, that's my most hated Saints team of all time. I think they went 7-9, and but, I mean, they weren't even that good. So I'm not going to overreact. I didn't overreact last year when they got killed by the Vikings and then killed by the Patriots and were 0-2, I still felt like if they could start 2-2, and they might have something, and they did. And I still feel like this is a team that's very talented, but, man, that defense, I mean, no pass rush. Even Marshawn Lattimore couldn't cover anyone. Uh, it was a bad day. Uh, a lot of things went wrong. Mike Thomas has 16 catches, yet he has a drop that kills one drive. And then fumbles on another, and it's like, okay, is the offense in a situation again this year where they have to be perfect? Are they in a situation again where a star like Mike Thomas can have 180 yards, a touchdown, and 16 receptions, but you think about the one drop and the one fumble because ultimately they cost the chance to win the game because they knew the offense knew every time they went out they had a score because the defense couldn't get a stop. I think they forced maybe one punt. So, definitely a scary, scary start for the Saints, but I'm going to try not to panic. It could be worse. I could be a Bills fan. On the podcast today is the return of Joe Buck. Joe Buck has been flirting with coming on this podcast for a few weeks now, and due to scheduling, we sort of finally found some time here this week. We did 25 minutes, and we'll get to that in a second. Also on the podcast today is Dan Wolken. We're three weeks into the college football season, and I'm interested to hear what Dan thinks about Oklahoma and Alabama and Notre Dame and Michigan and Urban Meyer 
and everything that's happened so far. So we're going to cover all of that uh, with Dan Wilkin. Don't forget you can find this week's show and previous episodes of the show that date all the way back to 2011 on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And you can find us, of course, on Apple Apple Podcasts and wherever you uh, listen to those podcasts. Uh, today on the show, like I said, we have Buck, we have Wolken. We also have a book club update uh, that includes some talk about the newly released Jeff Perlman book and a book about Letterman that I've been hinting at that finally came in the mail. So we'll discuss those two things. Uh, also, I'm going to have one last thing later on at the very end of the show about 83 Pearl Jam concerts. Uh, I went to the last. I went to three shows since we did this last, uh, which is one reason why we haven't had one in a few weeks because I was traveling for Pearl Jam. Uh, so I'll talk about the shows this summer and try to put into some perspective my 83 shows so far uh, in my lifetime. Uh, also, I want to give a couple shouts out first to the Greetings from Allentown podcast. Uh, it's at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. And uh, my friend Peter Winson, I actually met him in Boston. Uh, he came and picked Greg and I up at the hotel. And uh, we had a few drinks and shared some nachos at a brewery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, we are going to, we discussed our next Adams Division podcast. Uh, will be about Survivor Series 87 to 98. So that goes from the first Survivor Series uh, to Survivor Series Deadly Game, which I actually attended. Uh, so Peter and I discussed that, and make sure you check out uh, Greetings from Allentown podcast. As well, I want to congratulate the guys over at the Place to Be Nation podcast, Scott and uh, Justin. They just released episode number 499 of their podcast, which means 500 is right around the corner. So I want to congratulate those guys on a hell of a run. Uh, I've been a longtime fan of the Place to Be Nation podcast, especially their pay-per-view vaults, which are fantastic, uh, especially the originals. Uh, they cover SummerSlam 88 on episode 499, and I believe episode 27 or something was the first time they did SummerSlam 88, and uh, that's the one to listen to. I love the old school, first 100 episode, pay-per-view vaults. Uh, that Scott and Justin did before they became a little bit cynical. And uh, the, the early shows, they would just kind of talk about them in a very non-judgmental way, and I, I appreciated that, whereas now they're a little bit more critical, and I don't enjoy that as much. But uh, huge congratulations to those guys uh, for 500 podcasts. That's incredible. All right, with all that said, uh, let's take a break, and we will be right back with Joe Buck. All right, our first guest today is from St. Louis, Missouri, and he attended Indiana University before turning pro as a play-by-play man. He has covered Super Bowls and the World Series since 1996 for Fox, and of course, he's on their number one team with Troy Aikman. They're going to be doing Thursday Night Football this year as well. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our friend, Joe Buck. What's up, Joe? How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really good. Really good. Excited to have you back. It's been a bit. It feels like uh, 
think we you were on like two times kind of close together and it, it didn't feel like it was that long ago and I looked it was actually in 2016 so it's been uh it's been a minute did you have fun yesterday getting back in the booth with Troy yeah yeah I mean the game was kind of weird it was Cowboys Panthers and um Dallas was just off offensively um both defenses I thought looked good but Dallas, you know, has undergone a ton of changes, and we'll see how the first part of the season goes. I just think it's more of a function of what's going on in the NFL and how the preseason is being played. First of all, practice time is way down yeah. across the NFL. That That's mandated. And when you start a season and your main guys haven't played at all during the preseason – I don't know how you don't come out and look rusty. So I, I thought both offenses were, were kind of flat. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess the by the end of the day, Carolina was just less flat. But uh, we'll see how they both get through uh, the early part of the season. Now with Carolina having lost Greg Olson, they lose their right tackle, Daryl Williams. And uh, with all that change in Dallas, they they got a lot to clean up before they get after week two. Yeah, I think ever since uh, since this new CBA, I guess it's been since what 2011 or 2012 now. Like you said, practice time is down, and you have to be so. It's such such a vicious game. You have to be so careful. No one wants to lose anyone in August, you know. But I think the byproduct is sloppy football in September. So, right, yeah, and and I, you know, we all understand why. I think, yeah, you know, you're kind of, and you have huge investments players that you don't want to see them either get hurt in practice or get hurt uh, during the month of August. So that's part one. And then part two is it's a violent game. I think the more that the world is educated, the league is educated, players are educated on the long-term effects of head trauma. Uh, you, you try to limit the number of live hits that these guys have to go through, but, but something's going to suffer. You know, you can't take that away and then expect, to have the same quality uh, of football, and uh, I think that's really what's come with it. Is is there's the tackling's really not very good, and uh, and these guys just offensively the timing just wasn't there when it counted. I got a bunch of stuff I wanna I wanna get to with you today. We're talking kind of about the preparation for these guys. What about how has preparation changed for you? I mean, you got golf now in the summer, so you're doing that. You got new babies. Um, you know, uh, your life has changed quite a bit. And, you know, say going into this year or the last couple of years, as compared to maybe the five years before that, where I'm sure you had a really specific kind of routine, maybe just sort of this regular cycle of your life. How has the summer kind of changed for you? And how has that affected your preparation and maybe even your excitement uh, for football season? as you kind of transition into the fall. I am excited. I, I, you know, you talk about it long enough and you start piecing your schedule together and you can't wait to dive into it. So that's part one. And, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go that way. And then preparation, I've always been pretty good at compartmentalizing and, and, you know, I've, I've kind of been tracking two games, two game preps at once. Right. Especially when I have a Sunday followed by a Thursday game. Um, you know, I, I've, you know, so on Thursday, I've got the Ravens and the Bengals and I've been reading, you know, the back end of their preseason, uh, and 
their lead up into game one. And now I'm, I'm over that hump and I'm, I'm reading the recap of what happened in each of their games in game one. And all the while I was getting ready for Carolina and Dallas, but that's, yeah, I, I, I think I'm well, uh, accustomed to doing stuff like that getting ready for baseball while i'm doing football getting ready for football while i'm doing baseball like you said golf is on top of it and i kind of piece that together uh and we you know we don't do a ton of golf and that's good and bad it's good and that you don't get burned out it's good and that uh, every time an event comes around i can't wait to go do it the bad is you don't get the reps you don't get the practice you don't get the day-to-day and uh you know, a lot of guys on tour, I just don't know. So uh, I, I do what I can. And then mixing in four-month-old twins is a lot, but there's nothing more important or more rewarding than that. I've raised two girls. and Both are out of the house. And both are out of St. Louis. And now I'm starting over again with two boys. And, uh, man, I, I've got a great wife. We we get along, thank God. We, we can't... Uh, love each other anymore and now we're showering these boys with uh, all that we've got so it's been great I, I like being busy sitting around is not good and uh, I've not been doing a lot of sitting around I got a couple of follow-ups there <clears throat> I want to ask you about about Joe Buck the dad 2.0 but just real quick did you read for because I'll forget about this if I don't ask now did you reach out to Nance and say hey doing these two games Sunday Thursday what was it like or did you ask anyone for any advice about doing the two games or did you just kind of like, yeah, just everything I do, but well, two times. Doing, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't reach out to anybody for, for the football. I mean, I've been doing football since 1994. I, yeah. I know how to get ready for a football game. Um, I don't need Jim Nance to tell me how he does it. I, I think a lot of times when he asks somebody about their own preparation, um, and I'm not saying this about Jim because I didn't talk to him, so I have no idea. But when you when you start doing that, I think people tend to make their preparation sound way more difficult than it actually is. And uh, I say that because, you know, we all have our certain go-tos. Like I, I'm looking right now at uh, – the Cincinnati Bengals flip card. And I'm looking soon. I'm going to open up their media packet for this week's game. I know what I want out of that packet. That packet is, I don't know, 90 pages thick. And, and I'm not going to memorize or know everything that's in the 90 pages, but there are parts of that that I will memorize parts of that, that I will know and not have to look for when the game starts. And, and I know what those spots are. And, and Jim's may be totally different. Mike Tirico's may be totally different. Al Michaels, uh, I'm sure, is totally different. So we, I'm sure we all get ready in our own way, but there's nothing more important than knowing the names and numbers. So right. on Thursday, you know, i got to know if, if the Bengals are on defense, 27 makes a tackle, that's Drake or Patrick. And I, I, don't, I, I shouldn't have to need somebody else's help to tell me that that's part of my job. That's part of my studying. Uh, beyond that, I do my own reading. I, I know what I want to go to in the game and what I really don't care about or where I won't go. And, um, you know, I, I can do two games in the course of a week. I've done sometimes five or six baseball games in the course of a week. And, and, uh, it's, it's good practice. 
Right, and, and I didn't mean that as any kind of a slight, like, oh, Joe needs Nance's advice. I was just curious if, like, the unique no, nature No, no, is... well, I didn't take it that way at all. I, I think it's a good question. I certainly did when we got golf. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when Fox got golf, I reached out to Nance, to Dan Hicks, and heard, without reaching out uh, to, before I could even do it, from Mike Tirico. And of all the people, uh, Tirico was the most helpful. He said, you know, I'm I'm excited for you. I'm sure you're going to do it. Fox is going to want you to do it. I'll send you all my notes. I'll tell you how I prepare. And and that's really learning how to prepare is, is the, is the key to the kingdom. If you can figure out to get ready and, and, and feel confident that you are prepared, then you can do a great job. If, If you go in and you go, well, I don't know. I kind of mailed it in this week. I didn't really, uh, I didn't really work like I typically do. I don't know all the names and numbers. It's, it's a frightening feeling. And if you feel like you start behind the eight ball that way, you're never, you're never going to settle in and be comfortable. So uh, when Tariko did that, I always liked Mike. I didn't know Mike that, that well, but I was like, this is a really great guy. Like one guy helping out another in a business that's filled with people that are, insecure, worried somebody's going to take their job. Uh, Tariko said, let me help, let me give you my notes. And, uh, and and that was one of the nicest things anybody's ever done for me. He's always been really kind to me, too. Um, He's just a good guy. Yeah. You know? And, and uh, he was friends with my wife. My wife uh, worked with him years ago, and, and so I kind of got to know him that way. And then now we've just had our own friendship, and I root for guys like that, and I root for guys that are willing to reach out across the aisle, so to speak, and help somebody. And uh, man, he he was that for me. I, I can't thank him enough. And I, I try to mention it on everything I do because I want people to know how good of a guy he is. You mentioned having uh, having the four month old twins, and and then the older daughters as well. And I'm a young dad. Not that I'm a young guy, but it's a, I'm a first time dad, and and I have a two year old daughter, and. Um, yeah, you know, I was wondering this. I was thinking about it. Did is there anything this <clears throat> this time around, if that's the right way to put it? But do you did you draw back on your original experiences and say, "Oh, I want to do this different," or "I want to do this the same," or "Hey, this is something this time around I really want to try," or you know, like did Joe Buck, the dad of the adult children, give any advice to Joe Buck, the dad of the of the of the babies that you think is gonna, gonna yeah. be helpful? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. I, I think when I look back, there's not a whole lot that I would take back. And I think if you were on the phone right now with my daughters, in fact I know, you know, they would say that I was a really involved, attentive, lay on the floor and play Barbies with dad. Um you know, I, I, I really wanted to do that with them and for them. And I'm not saying that I didn't get that from my dad, because my dad and I could not have been closer and could not have been a better friend and, and father. But he was gone a ton. And I made sure that when I was a young dad the first time around, when I was home, I made it count. I, I, I didn't like being away. I didn't like them, you know, going through different milestones, and I wasn't there watching it. So uh, I made sure that when I was home, that time was dedicated to the kids. And I, I feel like I'm 
I'm right back in that mode. Um, I'm older. I'm 49. I don't have the energy I had when I was 29, uh, really for anything, uh, but but certainly for kids. And uh, that that's been the hard part. Is all right? Do I have? I just get you know. I got back last night at whatever it was, 11 o'clock at night. And then, you know, it's hard to go to bed. Then you get up and the kids are up. The boys are waking up at 6.30 in the morning. And then, so you're out of bed. Now you're gulping coffee and you're, you're making sure that you're not zoned out when they're needing attention. And those are, those are times, I think, I think what I know now is how fast it goes. And that's what scares me is while it seems day to day, like it can be tiring and it can be a lot of work and it can be, uh, you know, it's at times unrewarding because they're so young. You're not getting a whole lot back right now, except smiles and giggles and drooling. Uh, it goes quick. And so I remember my kids, my girls at that age, and I just was at one's graduation from college, one's graduation from high school. And, Either one of them live in the city where I live. That's a hard thing. So I think it's making me soak it up more, enjoy it more. Um, but but I, I think I, I soaked it up and enjoyed it the first time. I, I don't feel like I, I screwed that up. I, I, I was aware that I wanted to make my kids know that their dad, you know, was, was in their face and, and around them. And I, I, know I, heard, I know you mentioned in your book a lot about how much you loved – being in the booth with your dad. And I, and I think I heard, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you either tweeted to someone about it or maybe I heard in a different interview you talking about how much you love now having your daughters in the booth uh, whenever you can and how, how great that is for you and, and being on the other end of, you know, where your dad was when, when you were up there back in the day. Yeah, I well, I was fortunate. You know, my dad had had six kids by the time he met my mom and then I was in the world I think he really was in a different place in his life. He wanted me with him on the road. He wanted me with him in the booth. I mean, not when I was two, but when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And so, you know, I, I was fortunate. And, and he was somebody that wanted to take me to name it. And pretty much every National League city by the time I was 12, I was in with my dad. And... I took that same approach when my daughters were young, you know, it felt like I hadn't been home in a while. I was like, Hey, let's bring them with us. Let's, you know, to my wife, I was like, let's, let's pack them up and it can be a pain in the neck traveling with kids, but let's get them here. And I'm going to be the same way with the boys. And, you know, my girls are huge sports fans and they, they love sports. And I, and, and that's, wasn't a, demand on my part but i think they were around it enough that they had a real love for being in the booth being around me and being around sports so uh i don't see that changing i i think you know with as much as i'm traveling and as much as i'm working um when it when it gets to be too much i'll pack them up and they'll be with me and uh that that's the only way i would do this collinsworth gave your dad a shout out last night on the broadcast i don't know if you heard that I did. Uh, that was cool. Yeah, it was you know, cool. The whole I don't believe what I just saw on the Aaron Rodgers comeback, which I was flying uh, and, and got back. And by the time you know I got settled in, the game was basically over. Uh, but, man, first of all, it was a great game. 
And secondly, that was uh, that was cool that that Chris did that. He didn't say his name, no. neither did Al. But you know, hey, we'll, we'll take what we can get. I was a little surprised he didn't go with the "Do you believe in miracles?" with Al sitting right next to him. You know what I mean? I know, yeah, <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know. To me, the I think it was more appropriate because that game wasn't over, and you know when it happened, right? They're going to get know, the ball they, back. Chicago had plenty of time to yeah. get down and get a field goal and win the game. So, um, yeah, it was, it was cool to hear that. And I texted uh, Chris and said, "Hey, thanks for doing that. That um, that put a smile on my face, and, and I know it did on my sisters as well." Uh, let me ask you something about something you did this summer. Uh, you, we've never really talked about it on here because I always feel like your thoughts are so out there, but you did a kind of a oral history podcast version of the whole Artie Lang, Joe Buck thing on pardon, pardon, pardon my take. Um, right. I, th- I thought it turned out pretty cool. I was just wondering, did you enjoy that? Or like, I was thinking about this, like I know that you have really wanted to kind of break down some of the perceptions that people unfairly have of you. Um, and I think that you've done a lot of really smart things in terms of like letting people kind of like get to know the real Joe Buck. Like you've killed on Stern a few times and you went in there and had fun with some prank calls and like, you know, broadcasting JD eating his lunch or some silly stuff like that. You've done great in that. And like just some really cool things that I think people have gotten to see the other side of you. So when you hear about something like that, do you, do you be like, well, I don't know if I want to talk about this again, but you know, this is such a great way to reach out to younger people and and kind of show that part of me, or I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a couple of things. I think I think first of all, you could take the negative. You can go, well, why are you educating an entire younger set of people that don't even know that happened? <laughs> you know, that why why would you even go back into that? Right, Nobody cares, and it's it's ancient history. Um, but I don't look at things like that. I I look at it like if it's done well and it's done uh, in a smart way, it's an opportunity. And it's an opportunity to put your words uh, behind an experience or in front of an experience or around an experience that may change the way people who watched it back then uh, and had an opinion on it and have had that same opinion ever since. It's kind of like a behind-the-scenes look, and and I I I like watching that, listening to that stuff, you know, myself. And so if I'm able to provide that, um, then I'll do it. The one thing I didn't want to do is because the show was canceled after one year, I didn't want to make it come off like sour grapes. Like I'm going to come on and just right scorched dirt on HBO because you know everybody's going to throw it. Well, he's just mad because his show got canceled and, and believe me that that doesn't even cross my mind. And, and even then I, I was fine with it because the show just didn't work. And, you know, I, 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 I liked it. And those guys did a great job piecing it together. I did that, you know, like last summer. And, uh, by the time they finally got Artie into the studio and then I helped them get rod on the phone, they put it together in a really cool way. So I, I enjoyed listening to it myself to see how they would do it. I hadn't heard Artie's 
opinion on it. Well, I had, but not in a while. And I had never heard Paul talk about it publicly. So I'm glad I did it. The only thing that surprised me about it is I was a little surprised that you guys, because it was sort of unanimous between you and the fellows that do that show, that you guys really didn't think Artie was that funny. I, I thought most of it was pretty funny. Um, I know he got carried away. I can only tell you, I think more of my, and, you know, I, I, I can't speak for part of my take, guys. They obviously can think what they what they think. I think Paul was more stunned that it happened. And I can only tell you, you know, sometimes you don't get a real good sense because the audience isn't being shown or they can pump up the audio mics or whatever it is or, or drop them down at times. I'm just telling you, sitting there, uh, he thought he was telling after a while, and then after a while, it just became uncomfortable in the room. Now, right. at home, I don't know. I, you know, I wasn't at home. I was there. So after a while, I think people were like, "All right, let's move on." You know, they, first of all, they've been sitting in there for the last two and a half hours, and then when it kind of took a, not that the show was that long, by the time we did, you know, some warm up and all that other stuff. I think everybody was just ready to get out of there and it just felt like it was piling on. But, you know, I'm a fan of his, I'm a friend of his. I think a lot of him, I I worry about him and, uh, you know, I I hope he can stay clean and stay on this earth for a while longer because I think he's a a really talented, smart, sweet guy. Yeah, he's one of those guys you just never stop rooting for for whatever reason. You know what I mean? Like, I just always... I always just hope whatever I hear next about him is something good. Um, but anyway, yeah, pardon pardon the take, or is it pardon my take? I'm not really sure. But uh, there's pardon a, my take. Pardon my take, yeah. There's a great episode about that on there if people want to check it out. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Undisputed, but we're going to run out of time. You going to do more of that? I'm not. Uh, no, the Undeniable. Thing or Undeniable, is, I'm sorry. That's, so. uh, yeah, I, I did five seasons of it which consisted of 50 episodes and um, I felt like, I felt like it had run its course for me. Fortunately, the guys that I started it with uh, Peter Billingsley and Vince Vaughn are still doing it. The show was really successful for direct TV and uh, they're doing it with Dan Patrick, which is great. Oh, I think cool. it needs another voice. I, I think by the time I did 50, you know, my my portion of it started to become repetitive, and and I'm anxious to see how it goes with Van. I'm sure he'll be great, but I did fifty fifty seemed like a good clean number to stop with, and you know that I I just I had to cut some things out because right. of everything we talked about at the beginning mm-hmm. with former old twins and all the other stuff I've added since I started that show. Did you have a favorite of the fifty? Yeah, it's funny because the people that I talk to and, and a lot of people come up and talk to me about different episodes and it seemed like it seemed like a, a, every person was, you know, whoever saw it was was touched by, a, you know, a different episode. It wasn't like everybody said, oh, Michael Phelps or everybody said, oh, Derek Jeter. Um, I loved the Michael Phelps one. I thought he was emotional, uh, uh Vulnerable, talked about suicide, talked about the DUIs, talked about the bong picture, talked about all that stuff. And I, I think he came out of there feeling really good because it was like a therapy session. And uh, I, I had known him before all that stuff happened to him. And 
knowing him now that he's married and uh, he's dad, he's like a different guy. And to see him mature and then be willing to talk about it out there was uh, was awesome. So to me, because he's a friend, it, it's like who helps. But there are a lot of them that are really good and, and some sneaky good ones. Uh, Shannon Sharp, I thought was great and vulnerable and emotional. I mean, it's just every every one of them had something that I remember. That's that's a good part for me. I thought Namath and Ed Reed were both sneaky good ones this year. Um, Namath was so good, yeah. That you know we have a it's L.A. So they they have people who are like a paid audience member and they're young. You know, there's there are a lot of people in there probably aren't sports fans as audience members and, and they're just killing a couple hours and probably had never heard of Joe Namath. And by the time the interview was over and he popped up, the crowd was chanting his name. And I mean, he's just so engaging and so cool and so, you know, sweet that people really uh, took to him. I, I thought it was great. Well, listen, I got to about a third of my list, but, uh, at Buck on Twitter. Well, I'm not going anywhere, knock on wood, so I'll be around. <laughs> we'll do we'll, it again we'll, soon. We'll capture the next two-thirds. The problem is by the time we get to the next two-thirds, I'll have another we're third. probably going to have another <laughs> third that we're going to have to do. So. <laughs> uh, listen, it's at Buck on Twitter, Thursday Night Football. First one is this Thursday. Uh, of course, he's got his uh, Sunday gig as well, the, the game football game of the weekend. Um, baseball playoffs are soon, too, so I'm excited about that. Um, and as I always say, be nice to Joe on Twitter. You know, there's no need to be a. <laughs> or don't. Yeah, I, it's fine. There's no need to be a jerk over there. It's all good. I don't really look at it, so have fun. Listen, I appreciate all the time and, and what I know is a crazy you time of the year for, for you. You anything. Happy to do it. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. All right, man. Have a good day. Tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hauling out. She was a black hat beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. Way up firm and high. I want to thank Joe Buck for being on the podcast today. I know Joe has some haters out there, but I can promise you uh, in all the years of doing this show, Joe is one of the nicest guys uh, that I've had the pleasure to meet through this. Speaking of nice guys, a book club update today. Jeff Perlman has released his eighth book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. And this is, of course, a passion project uh, for Jeff Perlman. And uh, I know he's worked hard on it, and uh, he is going to be everywhere. Uh, Jeff works very hard to promote his books, uh, so I'm sure he will be on many podcasts and many TV shows and prints, and he'll be everywhere. And uh, we're going to promote this book with him in a few weeks. Again, it's called Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Uh, and I have a copy to give away. If you're interested in a copy of this book, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and uh, I will pick out someone to send one to. Make sure you include your address 
in there if you want a copy of the book. Uh, again, we're going to talk to Jeff in a few weeks where he will reveal on this very program what his next book will be about, uh, something that, as far as I know, is still secret, and uh, he's promised to to uh, to reveal that on this program. Uh, also, last week, I got a new book in the mail that we're going to be discussing called The Last Days of Letterman, uh, The Final Six Weeks by Scott Ryan. It's a really beautiful book. Um, it's a paperback, a sort of really colorful, tons of beautiful pictures. Uh, it's written mostly oral history style, uh, and I'm really excited to dig into this. Of course, I had to uh, fast forward to the Eddie Vedder pages when he was on one of the last shows, and I found an error, and uh, I feel bad. I don't know what to say to Scott, but this is what we got here. He says, Eddie Vedder is the musical guest. He first appeared on the show with Pearl Jam on February 27th, 1996. Now, that's not true because the February 27th, 1996 performance that he's talking about is the episode of the show where Eddie walked on alone and sang part of Black because it had been kind of a running joke on the show that David Letterman was singing that over and over again. Uh, so I'm going to have to mention to Scott, like, you know, I don't know if that's a technicality or not, but the first time that Eddie appeared, he wasn't with Pearl Jam. Now, a few weeks later, a few months later, when No Code came out, uh, Pearl Jam did appear for the first time as a band uh, to sing the song Hail Hail. And also they played the song Leaving Here, although only part of that appeared on the show as the credits rolled. Uh, we will uh, have Scott on the show, and I can't wait to do that uh, to talk about his book. So again, uh, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and the Crazier Demise of the USFL by Jeff Perlman. It's in bookstores everywhere now, and of course it's also available in ebook formats. And if you're looking for a reason to listen to read, excuse me, Gunslinger, Jeff's last book about Brett Favre, uh, it's available on sale for two ninety nine in Kindle and iBook formats. Uh, if you hear this before they change it back, uh, and also the Last Days of Letterman by Scott Ryan, which is available for pre order. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk college football with Dan Wolken. <laughs> All right, our next guest has been appearing on this program since 2011, when he worked for The Daily. Uh, he's a graduate of Vanderbilt, and he's here to talk college football with us today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Dan Wilkin. What's up, Dan? How you doing, bud? Doing great. How are you? Good. You know, I was thinking last night, I was thinking about your dream, and I want to know if there's any reason to not believe that Vanderbilt would be the hockey powerhouse of the SEC. Well, I don't know if it would be the powerhouse, but obviously uh, having an NHL team in town, one that's uh, become pretty popular and well-known and successful, probably would help recruiting. Uh, you know, my thing has always been college hockey is a lot of fun. It's uh, it's really good entertainment, uh, great atmosphere. And the SEC, I think, would actually be prime uh, – real estate for college hockey to expand you've seen you know you've seen arizona state mm -hmm. uh, get involved you've seen uh, a bunch of uh you know alabama huntsville uh, built a program that's kind of a niche 
but you know, I think if you if you really uh, looked at it, I think there's potential some of these big schools uh, to spend all that money, build a five thousand seat arena, uh, put some scholarships uh, into it, and you know, I think I think you'd be able to attract some hockey players to the south. Yeah, I was just thinking like if you look at what Yale and Harvard have done, you know, the last even five years. I mean, Yale's won a national championship. Harvard's been to a Frozen Four. You look at Vanderbilt. I mean, they're in a hockey in the NHL market. You know, high elite academic institution. Not really have any other sport that's a huge national power. I don't know. I think it could be good. I think Florida University of Florida could be really good too. Um, because the NHL has done a decent job in Florida. Um, and I don't know. Maybe one of the Alabama schools. I mean, they'd have a natural rival outside of conference with you said like Alabama Huntsville, but. We're dreaming anyway, right? I mean, probably not going to be this big well, SEC expansion yeah, anytime soon. There's there's a little thing called Title Nine that uh, right. prevents a lot of schools from adding men's sports because then you got to add women's sports, so the cost is kind of times two, right? Uh, so that will probably prevent these schools from going that route. But uh, college hockey is a lot of fun, and, and the nice thing about it is that you've got, um, you know, you've, you've got different kinds of schools that can compete. You know, you've, uh, like you said, Harvard, Yale, um, you know, Minnesota, Duluth, a powerhouse. Uh, it's just interesting. Uh, some schools that, like, you know, University of Denver has just a couple uh, uh, big-time sports, but uh, they've been able to do it at a small private school. So it's 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 a it's a diverse. Uh, band of, of schools that can compete in that sport, so I like it. The University of Denver's won national championships in lacrosse and ice hockey in the last five years. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. No, they've they've built a nice niche. Uh, you know, do, do, do a few things and do them well. Let's, uh, let's talk about the big, the big dogs in the college football. What, two, I don't know how you quantify week zero. Uh, when you're looking into how many weeks have we are we into the season, but two official weeks. And I guess the thing that I'm curious about the most is, based on what you've seen, does anyone stick out as having changed your perception of them, either good or bad, in the first few weeks? Well, I think we always have to be careful about getting too wrapped up in, in the early season, what happens, because... A lot of times, you know, the the, the early games uh, will give you the wrong impression of a team, and it's it's really only when you get into conference play where you start to kind of understand how good these teams are or not. Um, so, you know, obviously, like Florida State is a team that people had in the top twenty-five to start the year, but weren't really sure, you know, wh- whether or not or just how good they were going to be. It's a new coaching staff. Get a quarterback coming off a severe injury. Uh, how good was the actual talent there? That that's kind of um, that's a fairly typical you know type of story. But they're in the top twenty-five because of of reputation, and then you see them play twice, and they're clearly not as good as everybody thought. Now maybe by the end of the year they'll be better, but as of right now, like that's definitely a team that that you can say we were totally wrong about. Um, some of the other ones like. I know everyone is, is excited about Herm Edwards in Arizona State uh, based on that win over Michigan State. That, I'm not ready to, to 
say they're a top 25 team yet. I, I know they beat Michigan State. It was at home in a desert, you know, typical uh, August or September desert conditions where it's 120 degrees on the field. Michigan State, they're, they're not built for that, right? So uh, now they certainly have done some things well at, at Michigan State early, but I'm not quite, I mean, at Arizona State early under Herm Edwards, but I'm not quite ready to say, you know, they're going to be a contender in the Pac-12 South. So that's just a couple examples, one on each side of, of where I, I, I'm i not totally, uh, you, you know, we, we have a team that I think we can definitely say is not as good as we thought, but another one who's maybe overperformed expectations, I'm not totally sure I want to I want to crown them just yet. I wonder if the Arizona State hype is just that the expectations were so low because everyone just thought Herm Edwards was going to be such a disaster. Right, I mean, everyone's just predicting yeah, that's, doom. Yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it. And and the other part of it, too, with Arizona State that I think people forgot and or didn't pay attention to, frankly, was that um, they have some players there. I mean, Manny Wilkins was a very experienced quarterback. Uh, you know, Nikhil Harry is an incredible player. Uh, so I, I think... The cupboard was not full, but it wasn't totally bare either. And, again, I like some of the things they've done. They look more physical. They look more together in what they want to do. Um, but in terms of actually, like, whether Herm Edwards was the right hire, I don't think we can quite go there yet just based off two games. Have you gotten to see Kyler Murray at all? What do you think of uh, the $5 million quarterback at OU and the start of the post-Baker Mayfield era? Yeah, no, he's, uh, you know, he's awesome. Um, He is a guy who I think early when he started out at A&M was maybe, you know, not quite as well-regarded as a passer, and that maybe held him back a little bit. But, you know, like players do, you get better over time. You have an opportunity to sit and and watch and learn, and uh, he's certainly bided his time. He's can make a lot of things happen with his legs. Uh, and Lincoln Riley is a great coach. He's going to be in the right system, or he's going to he's going to give a quarterback a system that he can he can work with. And so I, I'm a huge Kyler Murray fan. Uh, I, I think he's electric. Uh, unfortunately, they lost Rodney Anderson for the year, and that's a shame because he was he's one of the best running backs in the country. Uh, I think that will definitely hurt Oklahoma. Uh, but Kyler Murray, you know, at least at this point, two weeks, it's early. It's certainly on track to, uh, I don't know, to, I don't know if you can say that he can do what Baker Mayfield did for Oklahoma and win the Heisman Trophy, but he's he, he's got a chance to put up big, big numbers. Uh, Rodney Anderson's just had such rotten luck. I feel terrible for him, but I wonder if Trey Sermon, he, he's a bit of a stud. I mean, I know he faded a little bit last year, but he was a true freshman. But, I mean, if you think back to that Ohio State game last year, you know, he was the best running back on the field um, on the road, what, like five months after his high school graduation or whatever. So I believe in Trey Sermon a little bit, um, although he did, he did, you know, admittedly fade a bit last year. Well, yeah, I mean, that's not unusual for uh, freshmen. But, yeah, I, I just – Rodney Anderson's such a physical freak. He, he was, I thought, the first half of the Rose Bowl, probably the best player on the field yeah. last year. And – uh so and he's just had some rotten luck with injuries uh, over the course of his career, and um, uh, you know I just hate to see that for someone with so much potential. 
do you buy into the Jim Harbaugh's on the hot seat stuff, or is that contract just no so big? Right? I mean, he's going to get his time. Um, no, he he's not on the hot seat. Um, look, they have to be all in with with Jim Harbaugh. Right. They they gave him uh, they gave him an incredible amount of money. They gave him a lot of control over what's being built infrastructure wise to make that thing work. Uh, he, he's had carte blanche and he's either going to um, make it happen or he's not. And uh, at that point he'll just leave before they fire him. If he doesn't think he can get it done. Um, but the other thing is, I, I think we need to put it in a little bit more nuanced context. He's not been a disaster. Like people who, are down on Jim Harbaugh, uh, it's because he hasn't gotten over the hump against elite teams. But it's not it's not been a total disaster. Like, you're still way better off with Jim Harbaugh than you were under Brady Hoke. Um, there's no, no question about that. Uh, now, whether or not they can be good enough to beat Ohio State, uh, to get to the playoff, that kind of thing, time will tell. But they lost first weekend – at Notre Dame, that's a pretty tough opener. You're, right. You know, you, you when you schedule a game against Notre Dame on the road to open the season, like, I don't care what year you schedule it in, there's a 50% chance at least that you're going to lose that game. So I don't, I, I don't want to go overboard on Harbaugh. We'll see how they do this season. Uh, maybe the Big Ten doesn't quite look as, as, as tough as it did a couple weeks ago. So, uh I think they're going to be fine. I think Harbaugh is going to be fine. I don't want to totally get, uh, you know, get get on the hot seat talk because it just that doesn't ring true to me. Did you, in a way, go to bed Saturday more impressed with Texas A and M than Clemson in some strange way? Did you look at Texas A and M as no. like a team on the rise? No. No, I mean, look, I think, I think that. A&M will, will be a force to be reckoned with on some level in time. Uh, they're recruiting well. They're going to, I, I think, have the infrastructure and the support in place to recruit well and to develop players, and that's all going to be fine. But, you know, I think the problem with A&M this year is – We've seen before in these types of situations, the team kind of puts all their eggs in that basket and then they flatten out a little bit. I think that will happen. I think A&M played over their head. Right. That, that big game. national game Clemson, at home. Yeah, the atmosphere was crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, Clemson's – Clemson, is, it, that, that was a fairly typical early season game for Clemson. They've, they've had – they probably have more to figure out than some other top – you know, five type teams because just because of the quarterback situation and how to integrate Trevor Lawrence into the offense, they, they've, um, you know, they've got some, some receivers who are stepping into different roles. Uh, now look, there are certainly, you can come out of that game with concerns about Clemson winning a national championship. The back end of that defense, uh, did not hold up all that well. I thought their defensive line, which we know is great. And we know that those guys are all going to be first round picks. It, it, it played well, but I, th- I think it's capable of better. But again, you're on the road. It's hot. It's, you know, Texas A&M's going crazy. Like, they did enough to win. 
it, you know, they were a couple plays away from probably putting that game in firm control, and then A&M got rolling a little bit. Uh, you know, Kellen Mond completed some passes that were pretty high-risk passes, um, and then there was just a wrote a little bit of momentum. I mean, I, I don't want to read too much into it uh, for A&M. Like, they could win. You know, they're going to win eight games or so, um, but I don't think – I don't think we look back at that game in November and say, "Well, we should have known they were going to go eleven and one or, or twelve and or ten and two. I, I don't think it's that kind of thing. Fair. Do you think Alabama, Clemson, and Georgia have established themselves early as the top three? Is there is that a tier? I think, yeah, I think those three, and I think you can put Ohio State in there, okay, as well. I mean, just their offense with Dwayne Haskins is so much better than it was under JT Barrett. And frankly, I thought they should have played Haskins last year. I, I thought the JT Barrett experiment had kind of played out and grown stale, in my opinion, and, and was really preventing them from reaching their maximum potential. And the way they're throwing the ball, again, it's early. They played Rutgers and Oregon State, so you have to keep that in context. But, but the way they've thrown the ball has been very impressive. And if that's something that they can continue to do uh, – it, with that kind of proficiency, they're going to be in that group of teams as well. So uh, they've had their own issues to deal with, and we'll see how, how they respond at TCU this week. And no Urban Meyer, that's going to be a tough game. But I think it's those four kind of and everybody else. What's your next tier? Do you have a next tier, like a group of three or two that you think is just below them? Yeah. I, well, and I think that next tier would probably be uh, you know Oklahoma, Washington, Auburn and uh, maybe Wisconsin, you know, maybe Notre Dame and and Michigan, Notre Dame, Michigan, Wisconsin. Okay, yeah, that'd probably be my next year. Gotcha. Um, LSU uh, got a big win early. It seems like one of those games that we're used to them losing. That Miami game, you know, um, I'm used to yeah. kind of losing that game. Are you? And they have a big game this weekend. Where do you stand on LSU this, this so far this year? That was certainly a, a good win for them. They were uh, they were fired up and ready to play. Miami was not. Um, but, you know, I think over time I still see problems with that offense. I still see, and we'll find out a lot more this weekend when they have to go play Auburn. Uh, I still think that, that they're going to have issues consistently moving the ball against good teams, against good defenses. Uh, I, I, to me, I still think, and given the schedule they have to play, they're going to be, you know, uh, an eight and four, seven and five type of team. Still, I, I think they've got losses coming, and and you saw like they they weren't particularly impressive last weekend against uh, Southeast Louisiana. Now, right, doesn't matter. You win easily. No one's really paying attention. But I, I do think that even in the second half of the Miami game, we now see that maybe it was a little bit of a mirage, at least in terms of the final score. Um, you know, they, they get a turnover. They had one yard run. Miami didn't show up at all. So I, I give them credit for winning that game and, and, and coming out of the gates hot. But I just don't think it's sustainable, uh, and I still don't think their offensive problems are fixed. Do you have some games coming up in the next month or so that you have circled? Games you're going to cover, games you want to watch, games you can't wait for, games you want to learn that you think are really going to tell you something about a team or a player or whatever. Um, 
Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know necessarily what I'm going to cover because uh, we're kind of week to week at this point uh, in the season. But you know, I look at uh, obviously A and M goes to Alabama um, in a couple weeks. That's going to be interesting to see with all the talk about A and M, just kind of how uh, how they look against Alabama. Obviously, uh, you know, another crack at a team on on the level of the Clemson team they right. played. Um, you know, Ohio State at Penn State is is uh, late September. That's going to be a crucial game. Um, you know, in kind of a weird way, Florida Mississippi State. Uh, just to see what kind of response Dan Mullen gets, and 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 that Mississippi State team looks really good. Um, so those those are sort of some of the ones that that I would look at. Uh, I would look at early. Um, I'm kind of interested. We kind of we kind of mentioned it and glossed over it, but you mentioned kind of like Urban Meyer is not going to be there for TCU, but then that's it. You know, his punishment is over. Yeah. Uh, he walks back in. He's he's the guy. How do you think? his job has changed, if at all. Do you think, you know, Urban Meyer at Ohio State post-suspension, do you see it as a a different, more difficult challenge for him? Or Well, go ahead. So, yeah, so I I think it's an interesting question. Um, And, you know, next Monday, I guess, he's going to be in front of the media for the first time. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see, okay, how – how uh, are the questions oriented? Are they about football or, uh, you know, there's so many things still from that in- investigative uh, or the uh, independent report uh, that sort of cast a shadow on what Urban did or didn't do. And he's not had an opportunity to be asked about any of that. So, how, you know, I think there's a clear tension that's going to be there between um, what he what he says and what he wants to talk about versus a lot of the questions people are going to be asking him. Um, so I think about all that. Uh, I think his credibility is definitely shot in terms of, um, you know, in terms of people just believing him uh, outside of Ohio state fans who are obviously going to be extremely supportive. Uh, I think he's, I, I think there is a strong anti urban Meyer undercurrent out there people just see him as very disingenuous and there was already some of that before, but given kind of the explosive nature of the scandal uh, that I think it's almost nearly universal now. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and if it hurts him in recruiting and uh, you know, and, and obviously they played well without him on the sidelines. So there's a lot of different elements at play here in this Ohio state story that uh, I think are still going to be season long, issues that that come up i just kind of picture this scene where he's standing in front of a a room full of media and questions are coming in and his answers are kind of like so does anyone have a question about michigan state you know or yeah we've addressed that you know like it's just kind of never-ending thing where he gets frustrated the media's frustrated and it just gets ugly i i I just i vision that yeah no there's 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 no doubt um and and that's uh you know, and it's the job of the media to continue to ask questions about areas of, of that of the story that are still unanswered, and that's just kind of a you know that for Urban, that's just going to be something he's going to have to deal with probably for for quite a while. I want to ask you kind of a. I hope this doesn't fall into the the 
the category of like impossible to answer, but I just wonder if you, you know, it's an interesting story. This is kind of like a nerdy sports media thing, if you don't mind indulging me on it a little bit. But the story was interesting because it was broken by this guy who got like laid off by ESPN and he had to write out his contract, but he didn't want to go stale. So he's kind of working for himself on Facebook and he kind of ends up breaking this huge story of the year type of thing. And he gets more airtime on ESPN the next five days after than he did when he was working there. And this kind of great irony. Did you learn anything personally about the way the sport is covered in 2018 or about the way you want to go about your job? Did, did anything strike you in terms of this being you know, a media story in terms of like how it developed as opposed to, you know, the story itself about Urban, but, you know, more the media side and you as being an active college football writer for a big outlet like USA Today, did anything change for you or did you learn anything at all in the way everything went down? Yeah. um, Well, here's what I'll say. I mean, part of this, it was, there's a lot of thoughts in my head here. It's not unusual. It's not unusual anymore for stories, important stories, uh, stories that gain traction, to be um, broken in non-traditional ways or by uh, non-traditional outlets. I, I think we've already been there for quite a while. And like Ole Miss, Mississippi State. Of, of, Right. Is that an example? Like, I'm sorry to cut you off. Like the Mississippi State blog, like undercovering the phone records and blowing up the Mississippi program. That just came to mind when you talking about that. Sure. I mean, there's all kinds of things and not just in sports, but in in a lot of areas of of news coverage now. It's just there's certainly an equal opportunity element to um, how stories take off. I would also say that it shows in the value of an editor. Um, you know, Brett did a good job. He also didn't have an editor and, you know, he's come under some criticism by some people for certain elements of that story and, and things that have changed and, and sort of the Courtney Smith, uh, side. And, and I I just think having an editor is a good thing. Uh, somebody to push back on you as a reporter. I've been in that situation with tough stories where, you know, it's not it's not a um, it's not necessarily like a, a combative process. It's just you do need somebody to 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 push and stretch you on. Are you you know are you solid about certain things? Because you don't ever want to be in a position as a reporter where you've got to backtrack on anything. And and uh, even though I think the substance of the story that Brett did was really good and and was correct and was right. Um, you know, you just, you have to push to, to try to get it perfect. And, uh, you know, not having uh, somebody, you know, edit that story, I left him a little bit exposed in some areas. And I hated to see that because, you know, it, it was such a good story and it shouldn't have been, it shouldn't, it shouldn't have been about Brett McMurphy versus Ohio State fans. That's not what you want that story to be about. I think you're just a really fascinating guy to talk about this stuff with too, because you've been coming on this show since 2011, and when we, you know, met, if that's the right word, you know, you were at something really new, something really cutting edge called the Daily, right? I believe that was the name. Yep. Um, yep. You know, and now you've kind of drifted back to the most traditional thing we have, right? The USA Today. I mean, I remember every day, every Friday in high school, you know, buying that paper, fifty cents. 
on the way to school so I could sit in the lunchroom, you know, and read about all the football coming up over the weekend or whatever, you know, and then fast forward to 2011 and we meet you and you're in this new thing, which is this like daily paper that's on the iPad. And I really thought it was really cool. Yeah. Wish it would have went longer, but I mean, it's just kind of like this interesting, you have this kind of interesting perspective of going from, uh, you know, probably the old to the new back to the old and then kind of watching everything kind of unfold around you. Um, I think it's pretty interesting. So, and then also you've, yeah, you've um, had yourself inserted in stories with the, you know, with the thing with the text messages, which I never seen the big deal, but like, you've also seen that, like the way that, the the machine will kind of push back or that's almost not the right description. <laughs> that's probably a, a bad description of it, but you know, where these, these people can, these disturbers or whatever can trolls, maybe even is the right word can come out and try to kind of like you were talking about Brett, where they make what the story should have been not be the story. Yeah. Um, well, certainly if you, if you're in this business long enough at a high enough level, you're going to see, you're going to see it all. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be targeted. Um, you're going to do tough stories and people are going to, uh, push back on you. So yeah, there's all those things that you, you have to deal with. Um, yeah, you know, the daily was interesting because even though it was a technologically, uh, maybe even ahead of its time type of product, it was, um, we tried to do a lot of traditional reporting and, uh, but just sort of illustrate it and present it in new ways. Uh, it was a worthwhile project. It was a lot of fun. Um, but you know, every, everything's evolving. Every news outlet, news organization is, is evolving and trying to do it better. And, you know, there's things now like you have, you get very good, uh, precise metrics on who reads your stories and how long they spend. And, uh, that tells you a lot about what people read and what they don't read and what topics are interesting to people and what topics aren't interesting. So we, we have a lot more ways and tools to, to break all that down and you have to adjust. You have to be willing to adjust and, and have a better understanding of what a good story is. And by good, meaning, you know, something that people will read. I appreciate your candor on that. Cause I, I, I kind of think we probably, if we were, you know, at the pub, we might have a little bit more. I know you got to be careful. I'm, I'm just saying I appreciate your candor that you gave me on that. I appreciate it. Uh, probably my buddy Richard Deitch on his podcast would have a couple better follow-ups than I did, but I did think you had an interesting perspective, so I appreciate your candor on that. Uh, last thing, and I can get you out on this. Uh, did you make a playoff prediction before the game started? I did, and I'll try to remember exactly what i said i think i had oklahoma uh clemson alabama and washington i don't know that i would change too much at this point although i do think it's possible you know if georgia and alabama end up undefeated um and then they play in the sec championship game that that both could get into the playoff i think that's definitely a scenario that's in play uh, because georgia looks really good right yeah, that's what I was going to ask. You, you kind of read my mind there, if you would change anything. But, um, man, it's an interesting system where it's a possibility we've devalued somehow the SEC championship game, right? Like, Well, yeah, I, I, I think certainly um, if you were to design a system of six or eight, 
I think the SEC championship game or, or, or all the conference championship games would sort of be automatic entry. Right. And that would maybe give those games more meaning. But in some ways, the SEC championship game is anyway is already that. Right. Yeah, so, you know, and some of the other conference championship games just frankly haven't been very good or worthwhile. Um, but at least now that Georgia's back, uh, and you don't have those crappy Florida teams getting in like you did for two years in a row under Jim McElwain. Uh, I think the game has a lot of meaning. You know, it's interesting, too, in the Big 12, you could have a situation this year where Oklahoma is undefeated, and then they have to beat West Virginia twice to make the playoffs, right? Yeah, well, I mean, that was how – that last year they had to beat uh, TCU twice, TCU, I believe, yeah. right? Didn't TCU make it? Yeah, I think you're right about that, um, but I don't think it was back-to-back weeks, right? I mean, this was literally they have to play them beat them, and then, you know, move to where's yeah, it, Dallas well, or wherever the game is and beat them again the next week. Well, and, and, and you know, that was one reason why they moved Bedlam. I mean, that, that they were worried about that happening with Bedlam. But right. um, you can't – the thing is, like, you can't game the system. You can't try to, like, you know, jerry-rig the schedule to do th- to do certain things or not do certain things. Like, it's, it's going to play out on the field how it plays out. You know what I mean? You just can't. You just can't. You can't. Uh, you can't avoid certain issues because teams are going to do what they do. Uh, Dan Wilkin covers college football for uh, the USA Today, and uh, you can see his work on usatoday.com and in the USA Today paper on newsstands anywhere. You can follow him on Twitter. Was it D Wilkin on Twitter? Uh, Dan Wilkin. Dan Wilkin. Okay, I'm sorry. I couldn't remember if it was D or Dan. Uh, at Dan Wilkin on Twitter. Thanks for the time. I always appreciate it. Uh, thanks for being with me since we've been doing these since 2011. It's 2018. That's uh, eight years we've been talking every once in a while on the internet. So I appreciate appreciate the loyalty and appreciate the time. Thank you, Dan. You got it. Thanks. I want to thank Dan Wolkin and Joe Buck for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this podcast and all of our podcasts on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also search for us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Uh, If there's a podcast app catcher that does not have this program and you'd like to listen to it on there, let me know, thesportscasters at gmail.com. You can also email me about the chances to win a copy of Jeff Perlman's book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazy Demise of the USFL. You can also find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters there. And I think that's about it for the plugs. I did want to spend a few minutes on one last thing today, uh, talking about Pearl Jam and going to Pearl Jam concerts more specifically. Uh, My first Pearl Jam concert uh, was October 1st, 1996. And it was the very first event that I ever attended at the then Marine Midland Arena. And then I think they called the HSBC Arena and uh, Key Bank Center. 
And I'm not even sure if that's what it's called right now. Uh, to me, it'll always be probably HSBC Arena, I think I think of it as most, but whatever, the arena. It was the first time I had ever been there. It had just pretty much just opened. Sabres hadn't even played a game there yet. And I only got to go because this was kind of during the Ticketmaster fight. And the way the tickets were distributed to that tour were via some kind of phone number. And I remember it was kind of a disaster and uh, the phone number crashed. And nobody really in Buffalo got tickets as easily as people out of the market because there was less calls. Uh, it was kind of a big disaster. And tickets were going for about 150 on the secondary market. And that week, I won a parlay card that I bought from the cook at the restaurant where I was a busboy. And I won like $100 on that. So I was able to scrape up the other 50 bucks and buy a ticket and go see Pearl Jam. And it was my first show. My first song was Oceans. And my second show was in 1998 at Molson Park and Barry. And then my first trip for a show was in the next year, 1999. My friend Mike and I went to the Bridge School Benefit in San Francisco uh, for the two shows uh, that year. And then the first real tour where I went to a lot of shows was then in 2000. On the binaural tour, I went to two show, 12 shows. And uh, the first one was the first show back from for the band after the tragedy in Europe. And, and see, that's the thing. Like I could talk about any one of these 83 shows, right? And there's just something about all of them. Right, like oh the 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 Columbus two thousand. That's where I met my friend Matt. You know Toronto two thousand five. That was my brother Anthony's first show. Uh, what else? Toronto two thousand nine. That was my mom's first show. Two thousand three Buffalo. That was Tammy's first show. First time I went. You know, two thousand and three Benaroya Hall. First time I seen them in Seattle. Two thousand Vegas ten year anniversary of Pearl Jam. You know, 2011, got to see Pearl Jam 20 two nights in a row with Matt. So I've been to Pearl Jam 10 and Pearl Jam 20. 2009, the last show ever at the uh, Spectrum in Philadelphia. I went and seen them at the Borgata, two shows at the Borgata in Atlantic City, and maybe the smallest venue I'll ever see them play at. You know, all these shows have, there's something about each of them. You know, people... Sometimes almost cringe when I tell them I've been to 83 Pearl Jam concerts. Why would you want to go to 83 concerts of the same band? I think I saw someone wrote on my Facebook, uh, uh, Variety is the spice of life or something like that. It's like, well, you know, I, I'm one of those guys that like to find something that that I can be. You know, my passions are, I, I'm all in on them, right? I mean, I've been a Saints fan for 32 years. If you know me, uh, I'm pretty into the Saints, right? If you know me, you know I love Pearl Jam, you know I love the Saints, right? Those are two things like that are my identity. I've been an A-Team fan since 1983. I'm teaching my daughter to be an A-Team fan, right? Like, if I'm in, I'm in, usually. And I'm in on this. And it's because, you know, I've been thinking a lot about wanting to kind of rank the shows. And... I've come to realize that in the last maybe six or seven years of the band, all the shows themselves are basically a push. Uh, they're all about the same in length. They're all about the same in variety. 
They're usually played at about the same level in terms of the quality of the band. There's usually the same amount of top 10 songs, same amount of hits, same amount of covers. And what kind of separates them is who you're there with and where you're sitting and how the venue sounds. Kind of like those intangibles is kind of what really is separating them in the last few years. And, you know, this summer I got to see three shows in in two venues, Wrigley Field and Fenway Park. And I'd never been to Fenway Park before. You know, so it was a chance to see a historic baseball stadium. I got to see Pearl Jam play Wrigley Field on a beautiful Sunday night. It's like the most beautiful day of the summer. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. Blue skies. My brothers were there. My wife was there. It was the first time I had seen them since 2016. And the first song was... What was the first song? Was it Long Road? Oh, Wash. The first song was Wash. And... Like... Anytime I haven't seen them in a while, when it gets to that first song, I just feel a wave of emotions. It's almost like I stand there during that first song and everything that's happened in between the last show and that show just kind of flashes before my eyes. Right? My daughter was born since my last show. I stayed pretty healthy, no surgeries or anything, but still struggled with my health. You know, we had some loss in our family. You know, people passed away. And I was there that night with the three of the most important people to me in the world. And I was making a sacrifice, which I loved. They were in the 10th row and I was in the upper deck. And I felt some pride in that. And... It's just this kind of emotional thing. And the show's great. It's a perfect night. And then the second show is is just crazy, right? Like instead of the perfect day, it's the worst weather you can imagine and there's a three-hour delay. And then the band comes out and plays a super fast show. And it's so good that weekend that I talked my brother Greg into a birthday show for us and we go to see Pearl Jam in Boston. And it's kind of a last minute thing. And we buy tickets and I totally fuck up. So I buy tickets from someone named Jessica Andreas. And her first name is spelled J-E-S-S-I-K-A. And her email is jessica.andreas at gmail.com. And somehow I email J-E-S-S-I-C-A dot Andreas at gmail.com. And that email address also has a PayPal. And I end up paying the wrong person $265 or whatever it was for the tickets. So I had to pay twice and then hope that the original Jessica Andreas would do the right thing and return the money, and luckily she did. So Greg and I get this beautiful hotel. He goes and books this beautiful hotel. It's $300 a night. Now, I don't even know that. If I would have known that, I would have killed him. But he books this beautiful hotel, and we're asleep the first night, and we're getting a good night's sleep, and all of a sudden in the morning, the maids bust down the door and come running through, and they're speaking in Spanish, and I, what the hell are you doing? Get out. And I kick the maids out. And we end up getting that $300 night free, $80 worth of parking free. Just a glorious, a glorious bank error in my favor, to quote Monopoly. And then it's another perfect day for Pearl Jam at a beautiful venue. A guy that I went to college with, his seats are right behind me. 
Couldn't plan that. And they come out and they start with this beautiful opening of sometimes release and low light. And it's perfect. And it's a good show. Not a great show. A good show. I'd probably rank them this summer. Chicago 1, Chicago 2, Boston. That'd be my order for this summer. No problem. Three great shows. Relative to Pearl Jam, a great one, a very good one, and a good one. Relative to anything else I would have done those days, just great. Great. And being there with the people I love, you know, what's been so great about this journey through all these shows that I've been to is being able to share them with people I love. The people I love celebrating this passion with me and and it becoming a passion of their own, that's what makes it special. To take my brother to his first show at 15, pick him up from high school and take him to the show. Special. And his love for Pearl Jam has been special. And he's even passed it on to people like his friend Kenny has a passion for Pearl Jam now. Right? They went to the Philadelphia shows together. And he was even at the Toronto, one of the Toronto 2016 shows. You know, to take my brother Greg to his first show, like I said, in 2010 at the arena. You know, that's special. And he's just really got the fever these last few years. He's into the posters and the travel. And it's great being there with him, sharing that with him. My passion, one of these things that means more to me than anything in the world Pearl Jam does. And I get to share it with the people that mean more to me than anything in the world. You know, and I'm not sure that everyone gets to be that lucky. You know, and right now my daughter's at a stage in her life where she thinks every band is Pearl Jam. Put music on, it's Pearl Jam. And we listen to them together. And I know someday I'm going to take her to a show. And I just, I just can't wait. Just like my brother Greg can't wait to take my nephew to a show. There's just something about being there with the people you love that just makes it so special. I've been to 83 shows. You know, I dream that I can get to 100 someday. But even if I don't, even if I never see a show again, I'm just so lucky and so grateful and I want to thank Pearl Jam. And I want to thank everyone I love so much.